Welcome everyone, it's 6 o'clock, it's WSQF 94.5, he's a shame for the Scottish Conservative Hour. WSQF, I'm going he's a shame. I'm going to let you know of an announcement that's coming in right now. I'm going to publish my book, The Fiscals, on paperback, in Amazon, and I've got my publisher on the line. Here we go. Can you hear me loud and clear? Can you hear me loud and clear? Can you hear me loud and clear? I can. Can you hear me loud and clear? I can hear you. Can you hear me loud and clear? Oh, what a shame. That you can't hear me loud and clear. Well, one thing I must say is that now can you hear me? No. I can hear you. Can you hear me? I don't like know what's going on. It's always bizarre when I can't touch the buttons on these contraptions. I can, I can hear you. I can hear you perfectly. Anyway, I wrote a book called The Fiscals in 2013, and I offered it free online. I refer to it all the time. And I didn't print it in paperback because it was a little missing piece of it. And the missing piece was a federal lawsuit that I was participating in that had to do with one of the chapters. And the chapters that I most participated in was the chapter concerning the first uh, direct ballot parent trigger law. And in doing so, it was a terrible experience. The law needs to be amended. I want it to be amended. And anyway, after... uh, I established a legal precedent. I wasn't successful at converting a school, a district-run school, to a charter school. So anyway, uh, I was involved in a case where I was defending uh, principals at Nevin Keith Cooper and Homestead. And they were taking their freedom of speech rights seriously. We both lost our freedom of speech. Then one year earlier, they never got a chance to vote, never established a legal precedent. I did the following year. But we were not successful. You know, the teachers union votes separately from the parents and they voted it down. And the parents voted it down, too, scared by the teachers. So they it was a total disaster. And the Republicans in this legislature has failed to change the law and amend what I've been suggesting since 2013. Nevertheless, the Never King Cooper principles uh, took their case to federal court based on loss of uh, rights, civil rights. And I was going to participate as a witness. And the judge acknowledged my situation in the first order at the circuit level. And upon appeal, uh, they lost. Therefore, I lost. And therefore, uh, I basically uh, waited all this time to see that case to fruition before I printed it in paper. That has happened, so I... I reported such findings in my book, and now it's time to publish it. Uh, There's other issues about reinventing the United States that are in this book. It's 430 pages, I believe, and it's going, coming in paperback. And I was hoping to receive a call from my publisher at the time, and uh, uh, Sophie Publishing will be publishing The Fiscals any day now. Oh, just in time for Christmas, so it'll be the reinvention of the United States by affect, not effect, post-Trump. So there we are. And as soon as uh, she calls me, uh, we're going to 
She attempted. Um, I'm going to have her call again. I don't hear you. I, do you hear me? No. Yes, um, I, can, I can hear you. Hello? I'd like to know why I don't hear her. But yeah. uh, she should call again. So we've got to try this again because um, it, this book's got to come out. Uh, there is a life after Trump if Trump does not successfully win this. You know, we have to reinvent this country somehow. We cannot reform it at this point. We really can't. So we have to uh, we have oh we, we we have to share this this stuff in writing. Hello. Hello. I still can't hear you for some reason. That is so bizarre. I can hear you perfectly. Oh well Karina, now I'm hearing you because Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Welcome, good, Karina of uh, Sophie Publishing. Thank you for publishing my book. And thank you You're for coming. You're quite welcome, my pleasure. And, and uh, thank, thank you for having us on your show. Do you have a, a fellow author with you? I do not at the moment. Uh, that will be for a different day. All right. Well, I, tell me. I tell thought me. we uh, should get to know or help the, uh, the listeners get to know who Sophie Publishing House is and how we got started because I feel that we have something in common, uh, you and, and my company. Um, I heard the initial introduction that you did with, uh, with the schools, and, and I know the, the background of that, the silencing of, of your voice, and that's what we have in common, I think. Yeah, it, uh, it was quite appalling. It was the reason for delaying because uh, I knew that I was going to be participating in that case. My mistake was not doing it myself. Representing them was not the smartest move on my part. Um, I had gobbled up all my money uh, in the actual firing of the trigger letter here in Key Biscayne, and that was a considerable amount of money. But the truth is I should have taken my case to civil rights court instead of just defending them because they were— they eventually lost because they were subordinate to the superintendent. He had the right to suppress their freedom of speech as a superintendent over them as principals of the school. So that delayed the printing of the book. So now that the book is going to be printed, um, that part of the chapter is now complete. And, uh, you know, I wanted you to, to, to elaborate further on how you started uh, Sophie publishing. How did everything happen? I will be happy to do so, and thank you for, for having us on again, like I said. Um, so Selfie Publishing House started, um, I won't say exactly the same way as your story with the school district starts, but it, it, we do have censorship in common in that respect, because um, back in the spring of 2018, I interviewed, at the time, uh, Denmark's oldest World War II veteran, because of his story, his involvement in in the war, in the occupation as a civilian, as well as um, a member of the resistance movement. Now, the initial writing of this book was in Danish, um, so we wanted to publish it in Denmark, and I went to several uh, publishers over there, um, even the one that I worked for at the time. And... Um, now, give, give the audience... That, that was, for example, uh, HarperCollins Nordic. There's a Nordic department to HarperCollins. Uh, two other ones were very well-established publishers over there, and one of them, uh, Politiken, it's called. They also have 
um, a newspaper. It's actually one of the oldest newspapers in Denmark. The one that I worked for, as well as the University of Southern Denmark, where I got my degrees from, they all wanted to eliminate any negativity about National Socialism, which I refused to do. And the reason I refused to do that is because Ole Bjørnsen's story, the Danish World War II veteran, um, it's his story. It is not my tale. I'm just a writer of the book. I wrote his book very, very close to uh, to the exact words that he said to me at his kitchen table when I interviewed him over several days. Um, the only changes in the book, or so not changes, but the only additions to the book is like, um, you know, specific dates and times and locations, history behind certain buildings that he was um, that he was stationed in while he was in the military. So, like, very detailed stuff is what I. Was the was the story, uh, you know, bloody and deadly and gory? No, war no, story? actually, it's not. I mean, he critiques um, Hitler and he critiques National Socialism. He critiques censorship and um, the oppression of people, the restrictions, the curfews, um, shutdowns and shortages. You know, many of these very same things that actually we're experiencing in the United States this year. And um, and so when I send it out to these publishers, all of them had one condition um, to fit their profile, as they called it, <laughs> and that was to eliminate criticism of National Socialism. And I said, I'm not going to do that because this is his memoirs. It's how he experienced, it's his life story. It's how he experienced the five years of German occupation of Denmark. And I'm just a writer of it, and I promised that I would relay it exactly as he told told the story to me, and send a copy to the Queen of Denmark, which we did, and and got a very nice um, thank you letter back. Um, you see, Ole Bjørnsen served under the Queen's grandfather, so that was a big deal for him to to provide her with a copy. Now, and, how did how did the war go per se? Was it a uh was a, a, a complete loss uh, when Hitler marched into ne- Denmark, Denmark? I would say it is. Um, what happened, and, and the story behind it, people should understand that too, is um, the prime minister of Denmark, Stowning at the time, Tobias Stowning, he had already a plan working with Hitler. Um, he was a socialist himself, and so was the foreign minister, uh, Peter Monk. And, um, it, you know, so Stowning actually had a an admiration for Hitler for the structure and the, you know, the job. Yeah, the industrialization and, and all that. Yeah. All those and, promises and, that you never know, happened. The, uh, the, I mean, Germany went through a horrible time during the 20s. Um, and uh, and people knew about the, the devastation and the inflation of the Weimar Republic. But... What they also didn't realize at the time was how oppressive the same regime would be in terms of if you don't comply exactly with the way they want things to be done, then you are persecuted and, you know, censored and so on. Yeah, God, communism, totalitarianism, Stalinism, exactly. uh, Hitlerism, and, and so it's all these fascism. These were the views that he expressed in his book that he was upset with Hitler about and with the Danish government for caving into. 
Um, Denmark lost its police halfway during the war. And this is something that he experienced. Like it took place right across the street from the bank that he worked at. Um, and he was fighting for the Danish Royal Army the day that they were occupied. And, um, and so these were stories that were very important to him to relay in its truthfulness, which I decided I was definitely going to do and not um, change anything. So when these publishers, including the University of Southern Denmark, and that's surprising that an educational institution would be so narrow-minded to to refuse a manuscript by one of the oldest World War II veterans when they claim fame to their history department. But now, now was, he, time, uh, was, he, uh, was he a... Uh, was he... How engrossed they were in socialism myself. So in any event, uh, when I decided to... Um, to publish the book after I came back to the States, um, I started my own publishing company here with the objective of working with authors that have experienced the same issues or that have conservative material that they have not been able to publish anywhere else um, and pride ourselves with unfiltered publishing. Um, so I started Sophie Publishing House and published the book in Danish in Denmark going basically through a third-party channel because the company is registered in the United States. They couldn't touch me over there, except for the German market, that is. Now, so uh, the, uh, you uh, are you talking about this particular book or a book that you end up writing yourself? This The particular book that I'm talking about is okay. When the Germans Came, and it's available on our website. So the first copy of it or the first version of it was published in Danish, and then the second version was published um, in September last year in English. And what's the name and of the What's the title? When the Germans Came. Oh, and written by yourself and someone else? No, it's written by me, but it's narrated by the Danish World War II veteran. Yes. Now, was he an infantryman or, or a man of rank or... What, um, what he was infantry. He was infantry. So it's a real um, sincere yeah. uh, right. uh, outlook of, of what happened. Right. Um, he was uh, drafted um, because they still had constriction at the time in Denmark, which they still do, by the way. What does constriction uh, mean? Um, that is like we used to have drafting in the United States, which ended in the 70s. In Denmark, they still have drafting of, of, um, of young men. So in other words, so before you go to college, you get in, drafted. He was drafted in September of 39 and started in the military uh, in the Danish Royal Army in October of 39. Now, Denmark was attacked by the Germans on April 9th, 1940. So he only had about six, seven months of training before the country was attacked. The fights lasted for about two hours when the Danish government um, capitulated. Wow. To the great dismay of the king. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at least Poland lasts about three but, weeks. <laughs> uh, come on, at least two weeks, not two hours. I know. It was an embarrassment in my perspective. So Did they just march, um, they just marched in uh, because uh, you're basically uh, an island, so th th there was an attack? Well, we have a mainland, too. I mean, the mainland is connected to Germany, so... So it was mostly tanks. Right. So they basically marched across the border... And because of the strength and the capacity and the size of the German military compared to that of Denmark, you know, Danes didn't have a chance. They really didn't. 
in hindsight, perhaps it was the best thing in terms of saving lives to capitulate so fast, because if you consider the fact that only 16 uh, men lost their lives that day, that's very few compared to what might have been had they continued to fight. So, you know, if you look at it from that perspective, yes, they saved lives. On the other hand, they were not ready at all. Um, I think Stowning knew exactly what he was doing when uh, when he allowed the German military to invade the, the country. And what 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 was Stalin up to? Uh, why didn't he come to Denmark's aid? No, Stowning was the Danish, not Stalin. Oh, not Stalin. Stowning. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, because I, I know Stowning was the Danish prime minister at the time. Yeah, the name sounds similar. That's true. No, and also Stalin had some uh, something to say about uh, the relationship between Hitler and Finland, and I'm confusing the story for some reason. Right. Well, I mean, if you think back on what happened in 39 and, and 40, in, in November of 39, we had the winter war between Russia and, um, and Finland, which ended at... Um, what was it, the 24th of March, I think it was, of uh, 1940. So there had only been like a couple of weeks break, two, three weeks break from war in that region before Denmark was attacked by the Germans. So immediately Denmark is taken over by the German military and those that are in the Danish service, they continue for a period of time of, um, for Ole Bjornsson, the uh, Danish World War II veteran I wrote for. He continued until October, at which point he gets dismissed, sent home, and becomes a civilian again. But he then becomes involved in the resistance movement. So the book is about his experience during the war years. Mostly as a, as a civilian. As a civilian and as a resistance movement. Um, activist. In other words, sabotaging so uh, the Germans? These narratives, I think, are super important to get out and not have it filtered through some academics that will only tell the story based on what they want you to hear. And this is, this is where I'm coming from with the publishing company. To me, it's very important that our First Amendments, um, you know, they have similar rights in other countries, but as we understand our First Amendment in the United States, that they're not compromised in any way, shape, or form, which is jeopardized now. I mean, we have so much censorship going on in the United States um, and in Europe, for that matter, too, uh, today that it's almost as if we're looking like 1939, 1940, but with advanced technology. The technology that we have today to censor people is absolutely outrageous. And it's something that is crucial for authors to hold on to and to really demand that our right to express ourselves, that our right to freedom of press is not compromised in any way, shape, or form. And when it is that we call people out on this. So this is, this is where I stand with my, uh, my company and, um, and the objective with our publishing. Well, so, I, think, uh, I think... And that's, that's one of the reasons also that I said yes to publishing your book. Yes, it's a situation where 
I like to think I'm the only guy in, uh, in the United States right now who bought his freedom of speech back from one mile he lost in 2013 to, you know, nine, ten miles in 2017. And mm-hmm. unless someone can correct me or someone just tell me if this has happened somewhere else, uh, I think it's a cool part of the story. Although you can honestly say from you have uh, read my book, you've know, you'll know that it's very little a portion of of the story have pretty much has nothing to do with the book itself. It's just a motivating factor that occurred long after the book was written. The book right. is really about reinventing the country and not talking about reform and just leave reform for other people. I think it's fitting now that I waited so long because of this trial that I was speaking about earlier. Uh, I think it's almost perfect now that we're looking at a, at a Trump era, a post-Trump era. So I think it's time that this country realize that the days of reform are over. It's time to think outside the box on the right side of history. And that's my theme. Find really- and, I, and I think you see that in a lot of people's um, <clears throat> perspectives now. Some, of, some are very afraid to come out and tell the truth because they're called every name in the book when they do or just express their their opinions. Um, this is something that people can read about in our paper that's coming out. We have a monthly magazine that's actually being published for the first time tomorrow, Sophie's Voice. And um, one of the articles in there is is called Dealing with Critics, the Uncensored. Um, and it's written by John Labriola, um, who has experienced being silenced as well right here in South Florida by um, by a group of lesbists. Um, and like I said, I've experienced the same thing. Well, how would with, they, how, uh, be more specific, the leftists, uh, how, what kind of leverage did they have? How were they doing it? How were they censoring well, they, He was the editor of their newsletter. This is an organization or an association of uh, about 150 members. Right, And he's been the editor of the association for quite some time. Over the summer, he wrote some editorials in their news, monthly newsletter that... Um, what was the name of the newsletter so the audience knows? Uh, this is from the South Florida Writers Association. Okay, and the newsletter was used as a circular... Uh, the newsletter is just like a monthly newsletter that talks about events that are going on and it highlights, you know, new books that are coming out or authors that are talking about their books and so on. Um, so he would write an editorial and some people didn't care for that and started critiquing him heavily. Within a couple of months, they had eliminated him and uh, replaced him with somebody else. My whole point is that this um, unwillingness to be tolerant and, and diverse uh, while they're preaching uh, tolerance and diversity is ridiculous. It's a it's a failure on on some people's part to to accept tolerance of other people. I mean, we should be able to state our opinion without being shunned. Um, but that's not the case anymore. And this is some of the things that we discuss in the paper. There's another article in this paper. Like I said, it's coming out tomorrow. Um, so they'll be able to see it on our website. And uh, that one is also about um, the censorship of people and 
and censorship being a crime against humanity because for so many decades since World War II, you know, throughout the world, we've been yelling and screaming about people's right to freedom of speech and right to, you know, move within countries and so on. And all these rights that we have established are all an illusion now because they're being denied. Well, it is fitting fitting that uh, the young Cuban boys in San Isidro today in Cuba and yesterday as well, they're also demanding their their freedom of speech and they're demanding... Mm -hmm. They're demanding their rights once again. But uh, that's all over the that's all over the world. I mean, you look at Christians in in say Egypt; they're persecuted horribly. Oh, and for Iraq beliefs. as well. Iraq, Iran, um, various places in Africa. You cannot express your uh, your religious beliefs without you know fearing for your life, and that is absolutely wrong. We've seen it in Europe. It's terrible what's going on in some places over there, and that's been going on for centuries. You know, it just it flares up and it comes back down and then it flares up again. And right now we are at a very serious point in our global society where these rights are being trashed again. And yeah, I think it all starts, I think it, in the case of Europe, and it's really sad that the United States doesn't uh, talk about this because we would, we would benefit a lot if our mm-hmm. news would study Europe and actually compare it to what could happen here. I think the biggest problem that Europe has is that people accept in some bizarre way, just rationalize socialism. It turns into communism and fascism really quickly on the dime in minutes. But if you but accept, you know what? I have to be blunt and say the same thing is going on in the United States. Yeah. We're people accepting socialism. Here, yes. And it's, it's really incredible. You know, I came to the United States in 99, and I see an absolute change in people's mentality here. And it's frightening to see how we're accepting. Uh, you agree, talk, then, that we, how, we're accepting socialism. Yeah, people are, but they're, they're being lulled into it by using different terms for it. You know, it's almost as if the, it's ex, the exact opposite when, when the left is saying, uh, we need to be tolerant and uh, accept diversity. It's actually the exact opposite because if you don't conform to their ideas 100%, you're being shunned and, uh, and pointed at like you're some kind of disease. And that is absolutely horrible. It's the exact same thing that has been going on in multiple countries over and over and over. Um, and it starts with our education system that is absolutely penetrated with Socialist ideas. Toxic idea. Yeah. Absolute toxic idea. And, uh, you know, you talk about how you were silenced by the school system. Well, it starts, it starts in the very low grades from, you know, kindergartens, first, second, and third, all the way up through college where they are indoctrinated with this idea and multiple choice Testing is one of the most indoctrinating methods. Wait, wait a second. Use. You heard that somewhere. Where did you read that? No, I, I grew up in a country where we don't have multiple choice. And when I was introduced to multiple choice exams, I was like, what kind of ridiculous crap is this? So you were, ab- you were impressed that, that it was I mentioned in my never, book? I have never taken a multiple choice test in Denmark. Never. I understand. When but, I saw uh, it in the United States, I was like, this is a method of indoctrination because you can basically eliminate two answers as absolutely ridiculous 
And the other two can be used to steer people in a direction that the school system wants them to believe is correct. It yeah. doesn't mean it is correct or it's the right thing to do or, it, you know, conforms with, you know, traditional thoughts or whatever. No, it's a method of indoctrination. And it's amazing that people in this country really don't understand how manipulative and toxic that form of exam is. And it goes straight from like they start in Florida with the FSA, which I think is child abuse. But now you have third grade. You have a certain amount of impact. Now, what did you think when you when you read it in the context in which I wrote it in my book? Well, I mean, to me, it was just like, okay, well, here's another person that uh, that finally has seen someone who gets it. Multiple choices. Yeah, I'm a, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, I was the only person to have noticed that. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, they, there, are, there are people that are coming from other countries, um, perhaps not China, because China is using the same crap. Uh, and I, I literally mean it's absolute indoctrination. Um, but there are other countries, uh, European countries, where they're using essay-style testing in schools and um and verbal presentations for example in denmark when you when you're doing um your exams and that can be anything from say math to physics or um, uh, foreign languages part of your exam is a verbal exam too where if you don't know your curriculum if you don't know what you have studied or should have studied for the last year you will fail the test because you go in and you draw a number. That number correlates to a an exams question. You get 20 to 30 minutes to prepare your presentation. You have 15 to 20 minutes to present, and then you're graded. So if you don't know your stuff when you walk in, there's no way to cheat your way out of it, whereas multiple choice is a way to indoctrinate certain answers. And if you don't give those answers, you're an F student which is yeah, so a you're playing mental trivia. abuse. It's, it's a mental abuse. Yeah, it's like a trivia way of learning, trivia, a yeah. trivia pursuit. It's brainwashing. That's all it is. And that's the reason why I think the American school system have become an absolutely toxic community. Um, and somebody really needs to reinvent it. It's long overdue. Something, I mean, our governor needs to take a good hard look at it um, but so does the federal government, because what's happening in American school system is absolute brainwashing. Yeah, but the question, the is, the question is how. Very dumb. The question is how. I think the only person who... Well, take a, good, take a good look at a country such as, you know, Denmark or Sweden or, you know, Germany has, a, has an essay-style exams method, too. Look at what other countries are doing. Yes, but you're you know, you're also don't, don't you're, put yourself up at the, as the greatest country in the world because it's just an ego. At this point, you need to start learning from other places too that has a different system that works. Don't look to China that has brainwashed people for decades. Yeah, it, you it, know you it, don't it, you don't need to compare yourself to places that are worse off. You compare yourself to places where they have a a better education system in terms of how they test knowledge because education is about knowledge sharing it's not about pounding in your head some ideology that you don't get a say and then you might as well go to school in afghanistan and be indoctrinated in the taliban way it's the same garbage well i'll tell you there's there's something that's going on in this country 
that I like to concentrate on how to get there. In other words, what is the process to get the federal government to get out of the school system, stop spending money on curriculum and start spending money on bricks and mortar only, allow the states to educate their children based on their culture, their, their economies, their land, their geography, as it was when they were colonies, and how do you go about that? That's what my book is about, is how do you get there, not just oh, play- I think part of it is you need to really break through to the legislators um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't agree. A, unfortunately, our whole legislative branch has become so disgustingly corrupt in the United States that, you know, you can't really trust those that are elected. You know, we look at the election that's going on right now. I think it's totally rigged. I think the whole thing is planned up front. Well, I, uh, before you came on, I was saying how disappointed I was that I gave the state legislator, a method and uh, for pursuing uh, the parents' right to take back any school's uh, administrative budget. And as we take back schools, we can compare ourselves with the district-run schools. And little by little, uh, the, the parent-run schools will become the norm in the neighborhoods that can take back their schools, whether they're left or right, liberal neighborhoods or mm-hmm. conservative. Irregardless, I could care less. So well, long as things I think we need to absolutely get rid of is uh, unions. Well, that won't happen. Union, that won't happen unless parents are running the budgets of the schools. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. Again, it's back to the methods. Um, I was talking about it. Uh, how about how the Republicans, the the group that I thought least uh, expected least resistance, I got the most resistance because they've been in the majority for all this time since 2013, and they just don't want to listen to me because. Uh, I don't know because it's me. I mean, why? Because it's not a uh, you know, it's not a parent group. Problems that, you know, I'm a Republican myself, and one of the biggest problems I see with most Republicans is that they are so afraid of confrontation because they think it makes them look like radical bad people. Well, you need to wake up because your country's being taken over by those very same toxic people. And it's one of the biggest problems that we have in terms of our freedom of speech. And this goes back to, you know, your, um, your First Amendment rights and, and publishing books uncensored, um, that we need to hold on to that. And people have to stop being afraid of speaking their minds because, you know, that's not a nice thing to say or whatever. It, it's, it's destroying our country. Well, you know, I mean, the, look, uh, you know, look, working with authors um, and uh, and seeing their texts, sometimes I, I wonder um, if they have been through a mill of rejections in other places or just flat out been afraid to to pursue it because they think perhaps that um, what they say in their books are not acceptable. Um, I can mention one book that I think is really, really good. And that's called Hit Squad. It's by uh, a local author, Will Harden. And the reason why I think this book deserves uh, considerable attention is, although it's a fiction, I used to be in the mortgage industry myself, in the banking in the banking industry. And Will Harden writes about the uh, corruption that took place uh, before the crash of 2008. The only thing about this book that's not fiction is the murders that take place in this book. That's that's fabricated. 
but everything else I had recognized. It's called hip squat? Hip squat. Oh, hip squat, H-I-T. Hip squat. Yeah, it just came out in May, and it's a book that I recommend that you read. If you've been in uh, in the banking industry or financial industry one way or the other, yeah, you I, was know, a te- I was a teller. Wall Street and so on, this is a book that is a must-read, absolutely. Um and there's some other books out there that are really interesting in terms of some of the topics they talk about, such as uh, we just had an event last weekend with Fernando Cabrera, another South author, uh, South Florida author. Um, his book takes place in South Florida and is about um, the murder and disappearance of a young man. What he does, which is very interesting, is instead of portraying Florida, South Florida, and especially Miami as one of these, uh, you know, Golden Girls and Miami Vice type of places. He takes you beyond that to, you know, the deep levels of society and and what goes on behind the scene. Uh, His book is called Dead and Lost, and I can definitely recommend that one as well. Um, And we have several new ones um, that are coming out and... uh, and books by, uh, you know, children's writers, uh, young adult writers are coming out, um, you know, testing the waters with their books. Um, and, it, you know, it's a fun thing to go to our book signing events as well, because I don't treat it as one of these boring events where you sit in a row yeah, <laughs> and so- listen to somebody babble and babble and babble for 20 minutes and you can't wait to get out of there because it's kind of boring. No, we treat it as a party, as an event, you know, a celebration of the author and their accomplishments. And, you know, people are offered a glass of wine or if they want something else to drink, of course, we will do that. Um, something to eat. And we just treat it as a celebration because I think, Publishing a book is a big deal. You know, we put hours and hours and hours into into a book. It's not something that you slam together within a few months. People well, like yourself, amen, you amen, amen your, to that. You can, <laughs> you can slam that any day. I know that. Um, so people put a lot of work into it and a lot of heart and a lot of tears sometimes too, because you get to a point where you don't know if this is the right place to stop or is there something you can do better? You know, we do have seminars that we offer. Uh, one starts here on December 12th that you can sign up on um, from our website. Yo, give, people, people. give people your website. Um, it is sophiepublishing.com, S-O-P-H-I-E, publishing.com. Um, and, uh, and they, you know, we help people get, to the, uh, get through the process, so to speak. Because even though you've published before, you know, maybe you've self-published or, you know, you've published articles, there's always something to be learned. As human beings, we've always had place for improvement. And if we stop thinking that we can improve, there's something inside of us that dies. There's always some, you know, you can, I send out my text to other people and say, hey, can you look over that? Because the second set of eyes is always good to have. Um, so when we do events for authors, we celebrate them, you know, we, we encourage that to be a networking opportunity as well. You know, you might be in the process of writing a book or drafting it at least and not knowing where to go to have your cover done. 
Um, and it might be an opportunity where you meet somebody that designs covers, which is what happened this week, uh, this last weekend um, with a couple of people. They were able to network with, you know, the cover designers for these books. So, um, you know, if people are interested in that, we have the next event here next, this coming Saturday on the 5th. Um, Rebecca Peranza is presenting her book. Um, she is a young uh, sci-fi, young adult sci-fi writer, and this is actually her third book in the series of um, Protectors of Humanity. Um, and I encourage both parents and their their high school and, and college uh, students to, to come and hear her because she has an amazing um, go-getter mentality despite her young age. I mean, this is the third book she's publishing. She's working on the fourth and last one in this series. And that's very inspirational for, for young people that might be considering, you know, now, now, are these sci-fis uh, the same protagonist in all of the books or different storylines entirely? This is uh, the same protagonist in uh, in this series. It's about a, we follow basically a young a young girl from when she's about 12 years old until she's in her early 20s. The fourth book, she matures into her early 20s, right? And so the uh, the readers are following the same character. Um, my oldest son, he read it and liked it for how it, how it made him feel as if he was sitting there right there on her shoulder and watching everything that's going on in the book. So that's, that's really great. Um, and then we have some other events that are going on that people can participate in. Uh, for example, we have a book sale that's going to be go, uh, happening right before Christmas on the 18th. Um, and uh, for the short story writers, we have a book that's going to come out next year. It's called City on Fire, and it, it's not about burning down cities. Let me just make that very clear. Um, you can interpret City on Fire in many ways, like a, a place that's really coming to life um, or about tragedies. It's really up to you. Um, but we encourage short story writers to send in their uh, their short stories up to 15 pages and get an opportunity to be published and have their little bio um, mentioned in in the um, in this anthology. And um, you know, so feel free to contact us about that. But you know, so how many how many about, uh, how many political books have you had? Am I your first? Am I your second? Uh, um, there's a couple other ones. I mean, I would say uh, voting because your vote counts that I wrote last year. Obviously, that is a, that has politics in there. Yes, of course. Um, it deals with civics and, and politics. Then there's another one called um, Rules for Deplorables. Say that one again. Um, that, what to deplorables? Rules for deplorables. Oh, it's that's... really it's uh, a rebuttal to uh, Alinsky's 1972 uh, rules for radicals. Right. Yeah. 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 Very. Very. Uh, very. Uh, very quick uh, on the title. I like it. Yeah, I like the title too. Um, and she writes well. She really grasps um, what the left is doing and how they're implementing um, socialism. The <laughs> yeah, well, how they how they have implemented. They've basically used Alinsky's um, yeah rules for radicals. People rules don't... for radicals as a 
you know, a manual for taking over the country. And it, it's so amazing that people are too blind to see that. So I hope they they would get her book, you know, ordered on our website and um, and support her authorship too. Um, and then we have, you know, life stories, people that are talking about growing up in the 60s, such as uh, Greg Alvarez, um, City Boy is about growing up in the 60s and 70s. Here um, in Miami. He's actually one of the few that are not in Miami. Most of the authors are from Florida. Um, but Greg Alvarez is from uh, Michigan, but lives in South Carolina now. Um, so he's the uh, one of the few out-of-towners, you can say. Wow, interesting. Um, yeah, and then we have, uh, you know, children's uh, books as well. So, And that's because I think it's so important that parents make a better effort to read to their children, with their children, and Often. encourage the kids to progress into reading to the parents. Like, I'm, I make my kids read to me now, the youngest ones. Um, because it develops their creativity, their creative mind, their um, their reading comprehension as well. The more they read, the better a writer uh, and the better a communicator you become eventually. Well, here so I have a skills. I have a quote from David Bowie that that will pretty much describe what will happen if you don't read to your children. He states, "I found this today and posted it on Instagram," and he states, "We have created a child who will be so exposed to the media." That he will be he will be lost to his parents by the twelfth, by the age of twelve, and uh, and you know that guy's a rock you know he was a rocker so he yeah. he understood something that was going on he did and my son I believe for instance I believe my son uh, was successful at going through law school and his uh, under you know his undergraduate studies was uh, the formation that his mother developed for him she gets all the credit. Of reading the Harry Potter books very young. Nine, mm-hmm. ten, nine, ten years old, he already had to gobble up a 700 page book and he had to read all the volumes. That's so, awesome. So by the time he got uh, older. And that's, a, that's a very long book. Yes. Or and she, they are, I should say, because there's several of them, obviously. Yeah. And uh, but, she, um, broke his, she broke his heart so young that, hey, kid, you're not going to be playing unless you read these books first. Well, and end up. Uh, being what he needed to get through law school. And he went to Penn State undergrad and then uh, UM Law. Today he's a practicing attorney. But uh, when I asked him, you know, hey, Matt, uh, what made you such a good student? What made you, you know, go through it all, you know, go through Mm -hmm. law school? He goes, it was without a doubt my ability to read fast, quick, and and efficiently because I was never really bored. And I I think that's something that they're not focusing on in schools today uh, in the United States. And I compare that to to what they do in Denmark, because um, we came back to the States after a couple of years in Denmark here in 2018. And I see the difference in how kids process information given to them. Um, the the students that I've seen as a substitute teacher when I first came back to the to Miami here, uh, it seems like they just they take it in. They don't really think about what it is they're being told. They just go uh huh, and then they look at their cell phone and move on. It, it's like processing of information doesn't take place. Yes, uh, and also mind, boredom. Which is really sad, because if I compare that to um, 
to, for example, the the Danish high school students, they're a lot more. Um, they question information a lot more. They they provoke discussions, um, which means that if you're able to provoke a discussion, then it means you're able to think. You know that you have actually considered the information and question it. You have contextualized with something else. And I saw that in, uh, in for example, the history class taught here in Miami-Dade County for ninth graders. Um, a couple of the chapters they were working with was talking about Islam. And when I read the chapters in my kids' um, book, I was like, this is ridiculous what they're writing. And I contacted the uh, principal, complained about the indoctrination that was going on, the, the absolute it, full of errors and omissions in the text, uh, the misinformation that was going on in these two chapters about Islam. Um, and I said, don't you guys ever contextualize with the primary source? And he looked at me as if I had three heads. Yeah, yeah, he, he was uh, insulted. Well, he you looked even... at me like I had three heads. And yeah, he you questioned his intellect. What do you mean primary source? And I'm like, hello, this guy's a, pri- this guy's a principal, and he's asking me what is a primary source? Well, the primary source would obviously be the Quran. I mean, that should go without saying, but apparently he didn't think it was necessary. You just go by what's in the textbooks. Well, any moron can twist and turn, you know, information from a primary text to fit their narrative, and that's exactly what they've done with the school books here, which is abhorrent that the the parents don't realize but I think part of the problem is that the kids are not allowed to bring home the uh, the textbooks that they work with. So the parents don't ever see the garbage that they teach them. And now, is that, at all, they, is that at all great levels? Yeah, this is what they teach the ninth graders in world history. Wow. They're, yeah, they're that's... basically glorifying Islam as a peaceful religion, um, not contextualizing with historical uh, happenings, you know, for example, like the invasion of Spain that lasted for a hundred years, and the brutality of of the religion and some of the current. Issues, well, how about the fact um, that that Jesus and Mary are mentioned twenty six times more in the Quran than Muhammad? <laughs> it still it still goes back to, and I agree with you, and it goes back to this problem with not contextualizing with other texts. You have, in order to process information and discuss it intelligently, you have to be able to uh, contextualize with other texts. In this case, it would be the Quran. They could contextualize with, you know, other writings. Well, look what, the, uh, look what they're the also, time. to change the subject a little bit, uh, otherwise we could really get into Islam. Uh, school itself has really discouraged the expression of ideas as a, as opposed to events. Uh, there's a lot in this country to say that people are spending way too much on events and thumbnailing and uh, outlining events. In other words, talking about World War II as an event instead of mm-hmm. instead of in context like you would say, like, uh, like the person you wrote the book for, uh, where he expresses right. his context of the event. Uh, he didn't really uh, want... You, to learn from his book by the dates and the times, but you learned it because you learned the context first. So you remember the dates and the times, which you've mentioned here on the show. So 
What's really what's really amazing to me is why uh, a system that was working in the early foundations of the United States became a centralized bureaucracy called the, the Federal Department of Education and the State Department of Education. They diluted the concept and outwent the context. You've got to have the context in order to learn so that you can express yeah. it and share it with other people. And what happens right. is people look at you, and the minute you give them any kind of uh, something to learn, they immediately walk away saying, hey, they're in a hurry, I'll, I'll see you later. They don't even want to well, delve also, into an idea. You know, it's sort of busy getting you through the process as fast as possible, and that's what multiple choice exam styles um, does. It doesn't allow you to learn. It allows you to just test through the system, and then you come out and thinking that you're this brilliant person, but you're really not because, you know, you don't really, you have not understood what has been taught in class, and that's that's what I mean by teaching kids to contextualize. And, and, you'll, and you're likely not to retain it into your life. Oh, in you order won't to, retain anything. Nothing. Nothing. You come out as an empty shell, not knowing anything about what's going on in your country. If you don't even know who a vice president is, there's something fundamentally wrong with the school system if the kids can't, you know, in high school, answer such questions. That's pretty sad, actually. Or they take a civics class and they don't understand why the Declaration of Independence was written. Well, I mean, the text itself discusses what they were upset with, but the students, they don't get it. Well, I always ask this question in the Declaration of Independence, who was it addressed to? And people can't answer that question. Can you exactly. tell me? Who was it, who was the Declaration of Independence? Well, they were criticizing the British king. Well, but And then who, they're addressing but, the American people how no, we need No, no, no. They're addressing France to support them. Period. Well, that too. That yeah. too. They're dis- uh, But they all they also clearly stating what they were upset with about the British king at the time. And that is one of the biggest issues that you have with the students today. They really don't understand why the Declaration of Independence was such an important document, if not the most important document, you know. And, yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to, with the last five minutes, I'm going to give you your closing statement and then I'm going to end it with a quote. Uh, so go ahead. Give us your closing statement, and then I'll read this quote that I also found on the Internet today. And it's kind of in the, in the theme of what's going on with the election and, and, and with the passing of Donald Trump as a president, who may never, uh, never be seen on our national stage again after doing such wonderful deeds with poor manners. <laughs> and, uh, and we became a nation of... Uh, of man uh, uh, of words not deeds and that's very sad to me because that is we sh- used to be judged by what we do not what we say today we're being judged by what we say not what we do and the the his failure to win re-election in a corrupt scheme uh is all about that and i'm, I'm very saddened by that so uh what would you like to say at the end and then i'll end it with this one quote well, at the end here, um, thank you for having me on and for giving Sophie opportunity or Sophie Publishing House an opportunity to uh, to be discussed on your on your show. And I'd like to uh, to encourage people to go on our website at sophiepublishing.com and check out the authors that we represent here 
uh, in South Florida, and you know some of them are are out of South Florida. They're brilliant writers, and uh, you know I encourage people to come to our events and take our seminars, um, use it for networking and in you know expanding their opportunities in and um, in, spre- in expressing themselves and really understanding the importance of a first. Amendment rights that is not just the right to to say what you think, but it's also a right to publish. Absolutely. That's being, uh, it's funny that's how being... you and I are living in a world where more people get to publish their work, and yet the other half are being censored. Uh, it's, exactly. it's, it's kind of an odd odd irony. It is irony. very odd. It is a very odd. And because uh, when, like I was I said, a young, when I was a young person... I couldn't even think of publishing a book. There, you know, I'd have to get someone to sponsor me or someone to actually want to publish me. Today, right. you just put your money where your mouth is, write the best work you can, right. and find a publisher. Right. Well, I encourage people to to uh, to check out our new Sophie's Voice magazine that comes out um, once a month. Um, it's going to be uh, published the first time tomorrow um, and downloadable as a PDF. Um, check out the great articles that we have in there um, and come to our next events. And of course, um, I encourage people to get the fiscals when that comes out here before Christmas um, and really just open their eyes to what's going on in the publishing business because the publishing business has become a heavily censored business. Um, and that's the reason why I went with my own company instead of trying to keep publishing with companies that are trying to change my voice. Really? Well, yeah. And, and that's that's the important thing to me to, you know, I could have shut my doors down when we had the shutdown starting in, in March. I did not because I believe so profoundly in what I do and and in what my authors do that I kept it going, despite the fact that we didn't get any of the stimulus packages that they were all talking about that went to multi-million dollar companies instead. So it's the better better side of the the human heart. In that. What's that? It's the better side of the human heart. Yeah. And with that, I'll read this quote. By externalizing and projecting evil into the unjust social structures and prophesizing a paradise like utopia via apocalyptic revolution, Marxism evades the central issue, and both the religion and the great art of Bali comfort becomes evil rooted in the human heart. By Camille Paglia. I'll end the show on that matter. Stay free, my friends. WSQF Blink Radio.